electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Gold hitting all-time highs, Bitcoin jumping to a 20-month high, while the Magnificent Seven are underperforming. What does that tell us about this market, and who is really in the driver's seat of this rally? Our guest weighs in on that and where the opportunities are from here. Plus, mortgage holders are now sitting on a record $10.6 trillion in equity, but they aren't tapping it because of high borrowing rates. Could that be about to change, and what would it mean for the overall economy? And it's Amazon and Walmart's world, and we're just living in it, as we already know. But that's the title of a new Morgan Stanley note. The analyst joins us with the implications for them and the other retail stocks. That's a little bit later on. Let's start with the markets, though. Bob Bassani here to outline the momentum, the trends. Bob, what do you see? Well, five straight weeks of gains starting off the week on a down note, but we're well off the lows. And what I like that I really see is rotation. Remember, this has been a big cap tech market through most of the year. Guess what's trading down today? Tech and its brethren, communication. And that's mostly tech as well. So what's been rallying? Banks, interest rate sensitive groups like REITs and utilities. And deep cyclicals, industrials are doing really well. Transports are doing really well. That's called rotation, folks. So you can have a down day on rotation that actually turns out to be very healthy. Look at some of the big cap laggards. All year you've been talking about these Magnificent 7 and Magnificent 25, really, tech names. Salesforce, Microsoft, Meta, Alphabet. Not today, folks. They're selling it off. What are they interested in? Just what I told you, some interest rate sensitive things. Suddenly we're seeing movements. Put up some of the, the gainers here today. Airlines? Airlines had a terrible year. Railroads have had a terrible year. They're rallying. Industrials haven't had a great year. Not awful, but 3M, not a great year. And it's it's doing better. Retail stocks, terrible for large parts of the entire year. They're also starting to rally. Best Buy is an example. And these REITs, SL Green did not have great guidance today, but the stock is up. It's not far from a 52-week high. Uh, uh, Some of the other big names that are out there, Simon Property Group, not far from a 52-week high. You would never have thought this a month ago. You never would have said REITs are going to have this enormous rally. But they had since interest rates started going down. Other markets out there, gold hitting uh, an historic high. I did a gold special 11 or 12 years ago. Gold was at 1100 uh, and this is quite a move up in the last few days. It's down right now, but uh, had quite a move. Bitcoin uh, over 40,000. As you can see, that's the highest levels that we've seen for Bitcoin uh, in the last 20 months. So where are we right now in the stock market? Number one, the most important thing is the market's overbought. But We're seeing rotation now out of tech into cyclical and rate sensitive sectors. That's a positive development, even though the market's down today. The problem here, uh, Kelly, is we're pricing in Goldilocks. We have now priced in lower rates, lower inflation, a modest economic slowdown and higher earnings for 2024. All that's great. Now, the problem is you got to you got to deliver on these promises. Goldilocks is priced into the market right now. Guys, back to you. Bob, remember all the gold buying parties back in the day? I wonder if we're going to start to see those signs come back out. Yes, I was present on the floor. This is how old I am. In 2004, when the gold ETF started 
trading, GLD. I was here the first minute it started trading. There was enormous interest in gold running up into this because everyone thought, oh my gosh, this is a great way to own gold. Now you don't have to own gold bars. And it was true, but gold had a run up going into it. Once it started trading, this GLD actually went nowhere for a year. That's what I'm concerned about with Bitcoin. There's been this huge anticipation of Bitcoin. Oh my gosh, since October, it was 30,000 and now it's 40,000. All in this anticipation that somehow this Bitcoin ETF is going to change the world. I think they've already kind of priced in that Bitcoin ETF to a certain extent. That's a great, that would be a great column. That's a great point. Uh, And we're actually going to dwell on it. Bob, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Our Bob Bassani still on the floor at the New York Stock Exchange. One of my next guests writing today that the spike in gold hasn't come out of nowhere. The commodity is held strong in the face of rising rates and the soaring U.S. dollar. So what is going on with the double rally in gold and Bitcoin, even as the Magnificent Seven stocks underperform? Let's ask CNBC contributor Peter Bookvar. He's chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group and Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management Senior Vice President Katarina Simonetti. Welcome to you both. Peter, can you Can you explain it? So let's rewind. Uh, Going into 2022, if you told me that uh, gold would be up over a two-year period with real rates rising by more than 400 basis points and the dollar being strong, uh, I I would not have thought that. But it was. And a lot of it had to do with enormous amount of central bank buying that really accelerated uh, after the EU and the U.S. confiscated half of Russia's central bank reserves where a lot of these central banks said, hey, we don't want to be subject to that. And what's better? What's a better reserve than having gold, not just having it itself, but storing it yourself. And now that you have this weakening in the dollar, you have a drop in real rates. Uh, that is the tailwind that created this coil spring for gold to finally break out uh, of this $2,000 level to the upside. Yes, it's down today, but I still expect it to go much higher. Katerina, what do you so I, I, I sort of don't believe in coincidences and to see both gold and Bitcoin breaking out today, I have to think macro, right? I have to think Fed, liquidity, I don't know, rate cuts, dollar debasement, what? Absolutely. And Kelly, uh, gold has been as a safe, safe haven asset class for many years. It has been considered you know, a place where investors generally will go to safety. And when we look at everything that's happening in the world, geopolitical risks coupling with the, the fact that interest rates are about to be you know, done as, in terms of the hikes, and we're already pricing in the interest rate cuts for uh, next year. But at the same time, you know, investors are worried that despite of the cooling inflation, prices are going down. We're going into the uh, election year here in the U.S. And, you know, there are concerns about what that is going to bring. So with that, you know, that flight to defensive stocks, the dividend paying stocks, and naturally wanting to add an asset class to the portfolios that is going to add that contrarian safety, you know, safe haven type of feel, you know, something that investors are finding extremely appealing. Peter, I'm looking at the the 10-year tips yield kind of for real rates, right? And I see a peak of around two and a half percent in late October. And sure enough, and now it's come down to about two. I mean, so is the decline in real rates what you think might be supportive of gold and Bitcoin? Or am I am I making too much of the coincidental nature of these breakout moves? Well, that certainly gave it its recent lift to the highs. Uh, but I think what was amazing about gold was that it traded as well as it did with the headwinds of higher real rates and a stronger dollar. Right. Now you throw in lower real rates and a weakening dollar, this could be the fuel to really have gold take off. Right. And I guess on that point then, 
it's a question of what a whether it keeps going, Peter. And I'm going to throw a couple things at you. So do gold and Bitcoin keep breaking out? Why do we now have this kind of deep uh, sort of value thing, cyclicals, industrials, transports, like Bob said, also working? And why is all of this a headwind and not a tailwind for things like the MAG-7 stocks and, and tech? Well, philosophically, uh, gold and Bitcoin certainly have uh, a lot of similarities. A uh, finite asset, anti-central bank, it can't be printed, and so on. Though how Bitcoin has traded in its existence, it's really traded with the NASDAQ and zero rates and QE. Now it's going to be seen whether it's going to be truly something that's correlated to gold, or it's just a risk on asset because the Fed is going to cut rates next year. I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, and now with respect to the MAG-7, uh, yeah, if the Fed starts cutting interest rates, that's because the economy is slowing down. And even the MAG-7, I like to call it the cult 7, they're still <laughs> going to be subject to an economic downturn as well as the other 493. Well, so Katerina, that kind of brings us to the crux of this, which is, are the moves today supposed to signal to us that soft landing, new rally, this can all, it's not just Santa Claus, maybe it keeps going, you know, there's, there, don't worry about the downturn, or is it the opposite, like Peter said, that we're kind of living on borrowed time? Well, uh, the, the stock market is taking a breather today, which is completely expected and understandable, but we should never base our expectations of the market in general on performance on any given month. And our expectations generally going into 24 are very cautious based on these three um, you know, points. One is that we're still in the declining earnings environment. Two is the interest rates are probably going to remain higher for longer than originally expected. And three, the market breadth has been narrow, which is something that we don't typically see in the bull market. And we understand that investors, you know, don't want to hear this message about staying defensive because last two years has been dawning on them and they're ready to welcome this next bull market. But in our view, not just yet. We tell them to stay with the sectors like consumer staples, like in industrials and energy that have sustainable earnings, that have the earnings that you know will remain growing to, even if there is an economic slowdown in potentially even recession. And sectors like industrials and energy also will benefit from this increased government spending, that, which is what we're seeing in this space. So what we tell investors is enjoy higher interest rates, stay defensive for a little while longer, yeah. and make sure that use bonds, you know, with higher yields in the portfolio. Yeah, you didn't mention it uh, per se, but I do see that healthcare is part of it. You know, people don't, they want to, they scream if, if you say healthcare after what's happened this year. It has not played out as expected, but I take your point to stay patient. Um, Peter, what then is this trend uh, that you discern here in the marketplace? Is this typical for kind of a, a late cycle rally where we're in that uh, interregnum between the last hike and the first cut? I think it's clearly that. Uh, who wants? Who doesn't want to miss a Fed is done rally? And then you throw in the seasonality of November, December, which typically is higher, and that's the perfect combination for a performance chase. But I do think if the Fed cuts next year, which I think they will, it will be predominantly because of a continued rise in the unemployment rate rather than a further deceleration in inflation, which I think we'll get, but the Fed will use the higher unemployment rate as a reason for that. And if the unemployment rate continues to rise, that means the economy continues to decelerate, and I think a high likelihood of a recession. But I would be very careful of just making investment decisions because the Fed has done hiking interest rates. 
because that doesn't mean we're going back to zero. I think those days are over. And even if they cut 100 basis points, we're still talking about a four and a half percent Fed funds rate. At the same time, QT is happening and they continue to shrink their balance sheet, which is an additional form of tightening. All right. I know no one wants to hear it, but there you go. You know, trying to really dig in, unpack what's going on in the market here today. Thank you both very much for that. Really appreciate your time. Peter Bookvar and Katerina Simonetti. Let's switch gears now and talk about a stock my next guest says is a potential beneficiary of the Fed pivot, and it's Schwab. Shares are still down 25 percent this year as clients have been moving cash out of their accounts and into higher yielding products. Uh, But my next guest says this so-called cash sorting could actually end and even reverse when the Fed starts cutting next year. Schwab shares are already up 10 percent over the past week. He says maybe they could rally another 20 percent from here. Joining me is Patrick Moley, who covers the online brokers and exchanges at Piper Sandler. Patrick, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Yeah, welcome, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So let's start with why Schwab in particular. I mean, is this one of many names you think could benefit or do you think they're uniquely positioned? Yeah, well, I think Schwab is uniquely positioned. Like you said, they've been dealing with this cash sorting issue. This has been going on for almost a year now. It's forced them to add high cost short term funding. They're paying almost five and a half percent on those balances. That's almost two percent higher than their asset yield. So if they want to grow earnings going forward, one of the things they're going to have to do is they're going to have to start paying down those short term funding balances. Uh, Once they start doing that, they can start growing uh, net interest margin and growing um, earnings. So when we put this note out last week, we sensed that a, a Fed pivot could be coming. If you look back at historical cycles, what we found is that typically as we approach uh, a rate plateau and, and the narrative starts shifting toward potential for rate cuts, clients tend to sort their cash less. And we think that that sorting will lead to a, a greater ability from Schwab to be able to pay down these short-term balances. And we thought at the very least it should instill confidence in investors that they'll be able to overcome some of these short-term hurdles. And we thought that would be a tailwind heading into next year. Yeah. And not that you have to answer to this per se, but I just find it a little strange that you have a name like Schwab up 10 percent last week on this idea of rate cuts. And yet the Magnificent Seven were down 5 percent. You know, you think that they should also kind of theoretically or momentum wise benefit from from rate cuts. I don't know if, if there's anything to say about that. I mean, about the behavior of financial stocks like Schwab and whether I guess it makes me question sort of the, the durability of, of their move, especially rate cuts usually signal a slowing economy. Yeah, so I think, like we said, Schwab is unique in that I, a lot of the focus has been on this cash sorting issue. If you look back over the summer months, it's the the narrative about potential for for rate hikes sort of started to calm down, and then the Fed hiked in at the end of July, and what we saw was a big reacceleration of cash sorting trends. So I think investors in this name have been a little bit more cautious, waiting. They want to get make sure there's a better um, outlook, and and they want to feel a little bit more confident that we won't see more rate hikes and we won't see a reacceleration of cash sorting trends. What's going on with the balance sheet side of things? Because my understanding is, you know, taking cash out is only a catalyst to realize losses that may exist because, for instance, of rate exposures. How do those losses look at Schwab uh, these days compared with other financials? Yeah, well, well, the losses look, um, you know, they're 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 they have losses. But if, if we look going forward, um, we don't see any issues uh, from the balance sheet side for Schwab. Um, if we don't get any more rate hikes, we think they're in a good position to, uh, you know, they're, they're saying that about a billion dollars of those losses are rolling off as the security portfolio rolls over um, every every month. So going forward, we think that that the balance sheet looks good and um, they should be able to deal with these outlook, this this uh, this issue in the short term. 
Who else, if you had to say, would you, I mean, is it the, is it the financials? Or you cover more of the online brokerages, obviously, but do you think they would broadly benefit from the patterns you're expecting? Yeah, I think Schwab could 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 broadly benefit. If we get rate cuts, um, we could see an uplift in 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 markets overall. Uh, they they have um, you know almost eight trillion dollars of of asset of assets under management. There. So I think asset management uh, revenues, which are tied to those AUM levels, would likely see a tailwind in that scenario. I think that the outlook for retail trading, the other large business segment at Schwab. Um, is going to depend on uh, what the economy, what what macroeconomic factors look like next year. I think that uh, if we do get rate cuts, you could see as stocks go up a re-engagement from those retail investors. Um, so, so we definitely think that rate cuts could drive um, higher revenues across across many of the businesses for this name. All right, Patrick Moley, thanks for joining us today. Like, make your yeah, case. Thanks we for having me on. It. Thank you very much. We'll get another read on the financials tomorrow in an exclusive interview with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan joins the network around 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming up, we all know the story of WeWork's implosion. But what about companies like Regis that have been quietly offering hybrid workspace for decades? We'll ask the parent company's CEO as they host their first American Investor Day. Plus, mortgage rates are down almost a full percentage point since hitting 8% just six weeks ago. What effect is that drop having on the housing market? We'll check in with ICE's Andy Walden. And as we head to break, here's a check on the broader markets. Dow's down 65 points. It's the outperformer today. S&P down three-fifths uh, of a percent. NASDAQ down 1%. And a 10-year yield under 430, 429. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. WeWork's fall from grace is one of the most well-known business stories in recent years, going from nearly a $50 billion valuation in 2019 to filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy last month. But it's a different story for competitor IWG. The owner of hybrid workspaces like Regis and Open Office, the company is hosting its first American Investor Day as its shares are down less than 10% this year. And my next guest says hybrid work is here to stay. Joining me now is Mark Dixon. He's the CEO of IWG. They're the largest hybrid workplace provider. Mark, welcome to you. Thank you very much for having me. Why the big transition with your company? You've got American Investor Day. You're going to start reporting in dollars. Tell me about that. Well, it's the biggest part of our business is, is in the United States. It's um, about 60% of our revenues 
It's our fastest growth market. We're growing at about 50% here in the US. And I think the change to hybrid working is happening much more quickly in the United States than any of the other countries we operate in. Well, that's interesting because we know the United States is different. A lot of other countries are more back to the office and here everyone's still at home. Why is that? Well, it's not, you know, the, the sort of narrative about back to the office and so on um, is, you know, people are back in offices. They're just not back in the CBDs. And where our growth is in the United States and we, we operate in 120 countries around the world is you know, people want to work closer to where they live. And very often that is in the suburbs, that is in rural locations, the places people that were, where people were commuting from are today's workplace. So, you know, the majority of our openings, about 90% are actually not in CBDs, they're in rural and suburban locations. So there's, there's a marked shift, but people do, the good news is people do want to use offices they just want to use them in different places. And that's really interesting. CBDs, of course, being central business districts. So really, it's kind of a suburbs, rise of the suburbs type of story, especially given the population migration. You said you're growing 50% in the U.S. Can you tell us more about that? Because that seems extraordinarily high. Well, it's high because of demand. I mean, we've got demand from both sides of the equation here. So on the one hand, we've got American corporations that are changing rapidly in today's economy. Um, they are looking to save costs. And with hybrid working, you save about 50% of your costs, number one. Number two, it's a saving that will make your, your workers, your team happy because you're allowing them to work in a more flexible way. And, and it's also, if you are interested in the environment, and many companies are, it's very good for ESG. You know, we are carbon neutral as a company, that's IWG. And we can pass that on to our customers. So on the one hand, high demand for corporates, large and small. On the other hand, American investors in property, owners of property, are also very focused now on providing hybrid workspace as part of their offer. So we're expanding um, with them to create a platform across the US. Hmm. And um, you know we have unprecedented demand from investors also to sort of come onto our platform. And yeah. that's what's in the growth here. My understanding as well is that WeWork signed a lot of pricey leases and that bankruptcy would help them get out of those. Now, like you said, it might not solve the issue of them being more urban versus more suburban, but it seems to me that clearly hybrid workspace is in flux because even in town, I live in the suburbs and uh, we had a serendipity workspace that then became your third base, <laughs> whatever that is. So, you know, even out here in what should be a strong market based on the fundamentals you describe, it seems like there's a reset going on with hybrid work workspace more broadly? Well, look, this is, let me just sort of address that. This is not an easy business. You need, this is a highly operationally intensive business. You need to be good at it and you need to operate very well and very efficiently. And some companies don't do that. So, you know, in this space, and I've been in this space for 34 years, and I started off with a single center every year from every one of those 34 years, we've become more efficient. So, you know, in order to be successful, you have to operate well. So the demand is there, but 
both from both sides of the equation, but you have to be able to um, operate the business at scale. And not everyone can do that. I guess my final question then would be, how do you kind of have the sharp enough elbows to fend off competitors, whether they're upstarts, a revamped WeWork? I mean, like the brands that I mentioned that I see, it seems to be like there's pretty low barriers to entry. The idea of, hey, people need hybrid workspace. Why does that have to come from Regis? Somewhat true, but not completely true. We're doing it at scale. You know, we have over 4,000 buildings. Um, in this, it's a totally different operation to someone starting up with a single operation in the suburbs. So we're, we're selling the platform in its entirety to corporates across the US and across the world. Mm. So it's that scale benefit that really differentiates us. Interesting. So then they have access to multiple locations? Correct. Absolutely. And, you know, we're selling to corporates that might use us in hundreds of locations um, with hubs and so on across the world and also nationally. So, you know, for companies, what they will also want is efficiency. They don't want to deal with 50 different small suppliers. They want a single platform that people can flow between and, and they can be efficient uh, you know, in supporting their people and in gaining more productivity from workers. That's fascinating. Well, uh, by the way, did you ever think about taking the IP? Not that it was for sale, but I don't know. If Once they go bankrupt, maybe you could take the ticker or something. Well, we've, we've thought about everything in the time I've been doing this business. But um, look, overall, we're very focused on building our own company. Yeah. You know, we, we do so in a low-risk way. We're not a risky company in terms of how we're growing the business. And we'd rather go a little slower but win the race. All right. The tortoise approach. Mark Dixon, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. From IWG. Coming up, it's Finance Day at the UN's COP28 Climate Change Conference in Dubai. We'll hear from a top Amazon exec on that later in the show, even as one high-profile ESG advocate, hedge fund manager Jeffrey Ubbin, closes his sustainable investing firm. Plus, a mile-high merger between Alaska and Hawaiian will tell you why the CEOs say this deal will get past the DOJ and why Alaska investors don't seem too thrilled about that. Shares down almost 15% on that news. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow is down 216 points at the lows. It's only down 80 right now. The S&P is down 32. The Nasdaq is still down more than 1%. And the Russell 2000s are in the green today, leading the way up three quarters of 1%. Spotify shares up 8% after the company announced it's laying off 17% of its workforce, or about 1,500 employees. It's their third round of job cuts this year. CEO Daniel Ek telling workers Spotify invested too much in 2020 and 2021 and has to right-size its costs for a new economic reality. The shares are up 146% since Jan 1. Meantime, a new report reveals that OpenAI agreed to buy $51 million worth of AI chips from a startup backed by CEO Sam Altman. 
Joining me now to discuss is our tech correspondent, Steve. You snuck in I'm there. I'm creeping you into your in. shot just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> our tech correspondent, like Steve Kovac. So we were, is there some controversy around this or, or yeah, conflict so, of interest? Or? Yeah, that's the, that, that, that is a controversy here. So this is a, a startup, an AI chip startup that a couple years ago, this all came out from a CFIUS uh, investigation wow. that had um, some Saudi backers uh, kind of you know, divest from this company. Anyway, long story short, it looks like OpenAI under CEO Sam Altman uh, signed a letter of intent to buy about $50 million, $51 million of these chips. But Altman is invested in that company. He put in a million dollars into this company. So it's kind of a bad look. Let's back up for a second. Why did they need the chips? Oh, the same reason we hear everyone making their own chips uh, from Microsoft on down is because these chips are really expensive and everyone's looking for alternatives. We, you know, just a couple weeks ago, we had Amazon, or last week rather, we had Amazon announcing their own chips. We had Microsoft announcing their own AI chips. All of this is a way, these are really expensive and uh, to do what OpenAI does just costs a fortune in this hardware. So were they looking around to get chips? Let me, let me try, in other words, play it from sure. how he might defend himself. Well, we need chips. This company had chips. What's the exactly. problem? And on top of that, there were all these reports before the whole uh, drama around his ouster and so forth. There were these reports that he was raising money to uh, basically build some of the, this hardware in-house or maybe through another startup. Um, so there was a lot of kind of talk. This is something they've been thinking about for a long time. And also, we should also make clear this isn't necessarily why he's fired. We don't know for sure. And we should also say that a letter of intent doesn't mean they're going to do it. In fact, most of the time, it doesn't happen. It just means they're interested. Do we know if they had looked at other op options in the marketplace, if they were going to pay a fair market price? I mean, I, I could see if they were going to pay more than market or if they didn't look at it. You know, I could understand yeah. if, if people felt like, well, we need to get a better deal well, for ourselves. But I, I They're I all looking details. at ways. I mean, it's not just opening eye. They're all looking at ways to wrap rationalize these costs and figure out other ways to make this uh, cheaper to, to do. So not necessarily, but I will, again, point back to all those reports that we got leading up to that firing, that he was out there talking to people, talking about raising money uh, to, for this hardware to uh, make it cheaper. I mean, it is really expensive. On the other hand, keep in mind OpenAI's benefit here is their partnership with Microsoft gives them the ability to use Microsoft's hardware, use their cloud infrastructure for a lot of what they do. Remember, Microsoft isn't paying cash or full cash necessarily for their stake in OpenAI. They're also paying in these cloud credits that lets OpenAI just kind of operate, not for free, but you know, use these really expensive cloud products. Absolutely. Quick final question then. Do we expect that Sam will have to answer to this uh, potential investment or what other questions do you think are going to be put to him it, now as this drama kind of moves past its critical moment? Yeah, and this is also, be, keep in mind, this was years ago. Uh, I think it was 2019, so four years ago. OpenAI is a very different company than it was now. The technology is very different uh, than it was at the time they're working at. ChatGPT would even know what it was at the time, for example. So it's unclear. We do know that Altman is very interested in hardware, doing something, whether that's there are those reports about some kind of Johnny Ive-inspired AI phone and also some of their own chips. So there is there does seem to be a hardware play coming for OpenAI down the road. Might not be through this startup that's untested, unproven like some of these other chips. Yeah, so. Well said, Steve. Thank Thanks. you. We appreciate it. Steve Kovac reporting. And we're only two days away from CNBC's Work Summit, which is the promise and peril of AI. You can hear from experts on how it'll transform the future of work. To register, scan that QR code or visit CNBCEvents.com. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Really, I'll be there for that event. Thank you very much. We hope everybody will join us. Russian President Vladimir Putin will travel to the United Arab Emirates 
and Saudi Arabia this week. A Russian news outlet reported the expected visits. All three countries are part of the OPEC Plus oil producer group. Putin's rare trip abroad comes shortly after the group agreed to cut voluntary output. The meeting will take place as the UAE hosts the annual COP28 climate summit in Dubai. Opening arguments started today in the criminal trial of Marvel actor Jonathan Majors. Majors arrested in March and charged with allegedly assaulting his former girlfriend during an argument. A six-person jury is expected to hear testimony from Majors and his accuser. Majors could face up to a year in jail if convicted. And a Babe Ruth baseball card sold for $7.2 million, third highest amount ever paid for a sports card. It is the first time in a decade a Ruth rookie card has been up for sale. The 1914 Baltimore News rookie card is the most expensive Ruth item of all time. The Babe still selling. Kelly? Still one of the best books I ever read was that summer of 1927 one. I can't remember the title. Bill Bryson, maybe? Anyway. Could have been. Yeah. yeah, Google it. Tyler, thanks. Coming up, homeowners are sitting on more than $10 trillion in tappable equity, but it's too costly to use it. And at the same time, the home construction and home builder ETFs are hitting new highs up about 25% in six weeks. Even as MAI's Chris Grisanti told us he's eliminating the rest of his position in them. And before we head to break, let's get some show and tell, where we show you a chart and tell the story. Shares of Hawaiian Airlines are soaring after Alaska agreed to buy the company in a deal worth about $2 billion. It's a second airline merger in as many years following JetBlue's deal to buy Spirit. But will it get past federal regulators? Here's what Alaska CEO Ben Minicucci told Squawk on the Street this morning. On the merits of this deal is simply it is pro-consumer and pro-competitive. When when you combine both these networks, uh, we'll have about 1,400 flights a day. Only 12 out of those 1,400 flights is where we have overlap. And then the, you have an expanded domestic platform, an expanded international platform for our customers on the West Coast and for uh, our, our residents in Hawaii. Welcome back to The Exchange. Are U.S. homeowners sitting on a gold mine? According to a new report from ICE Mortgage Technology, mortgage holders withdrew less than half a percent of their total tappable equity at the beginning of Q3, which is half the average rate we saw last decade. That's equivalent to an estimated $54 billion over the past 18 months in missing withdrawals that might have otherwise stimulated the broader economy, according to my next guest. For more, we're joined by Andy Walden, ICE Mortgage Technology Vice President of Enterprise Research. Andy, we love following your journey, by the way, from home to ICE to just the whole thing. Uh, welcome. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. Thanks, Kelly. So what I ponder when I think about this is if slash when the economy weakens and rates fall, could homeowners all of a sudden start to tap this more vigorously? Yeah, I absolutely think that's a possibility. I mean, there's a couple different ways they do it. One is with cash out refinances. We've already seen 30-year rates start to ease over the last month or so. And then the, the other one, second lien home equity lines of credit. And as the Fed starts to ease, or at least they're expected to start to ease late next year, you could see it become a little bit more affordable to start to utilize that equity. How expensive is it now? I mean, I've, when I've looked at home equity prices, they're typically quite up there in terms of the borrowing rates. 
Yeah, if you look at our McDash Home Equity database, it says the average rate in September was about 9.3% wow. on a second lien home equity line of credit up three percentage points from the same time last year. Highest it's been since we started collecting that data back in 2008. And so it's become considerably more expensive, especially as the Fed has started to tighten. Obviously, HELOC's tied to the prime, prime tied to the Fed funds rate. So you know, as the Fed has put pressure on the broader economy, certainly putting pressure on those HELOC interest rates as well. And we know 5, 10, 15 years ago, these were used by a lot of people to finance renovations, sometimes vacations, sometimes college educations. I guess if they needed to, it would still be there to tap, but it just would be quite pricey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's still available, right? If you look at the amount of equity that folks have, we saw a little bit of a pullback as prices corrected late last year. We're within 3%, right? You mentioned the number earlier, $10.5 trillion of equity out there. It could be borrowed while still keeping a 20% cushion in their home. So the equity is there. It's just a matter of how much do you need it, right? How much do you want to borrow it? Are you willing to pay 9% on it for a HELOC? Are you willing to pay over 7% on a cash out refi to start to, to utilize that equity? What, one more quick question on this. Do you think that people, I'm thinking of kind of the, um, the servicers, the providers, you know, people in the, in the, in the home uh, lending space, do you think they would try to get more creative to bring those rates down and stimulate more activity or would it just not be worth it for them? We haven't seen it yet, right? So when you look at the HELOC to prime interest rate spread, which would show you how aggressive lenders are being in terms of that equity lending, you saw it get really low last year. In fact, there was a point last year where, one, you could get a HELOC below prime, and two, you could get a HELOC interest rate below the 30-year fixed. As there's more uncertainty about the broader economy and as, as the dynamics have shifted a little bit, you've seen those spread spreads widen, which suggests that home equity lenders aren't being quite as aggressive as they were last year and not even as aggressive as they were in the pre-pandemic era either. So we haven't seen that yet in terms of aggression um, and, and getting creative, uh, but certainly could, uh, really depending on what we see in economic and broader risks out there in the market. Yeah, as ever. Andy, for now, thanks very much. We appreciate your time. You bet. Thank you. Andy Walden with ICE. Still ahead, climate change, it's still big business, and that means plenty of companies are positioning for a slice of it. Our Diana Olick is live at COP28 over in Dubai. Diana? That's right, Kelly. Billions of dollars have already been pledged here, but trillions more are at stake. We'll tell you what kind of climate opportunities Amazon is looking at coming up next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. The United Nations Climate Summit, COP28, underway in Dubai, with governments, including the U.S., making sizable commitments over the weekend. And even as ESG investing has started to flame out, with more funds dropping than adding ESG criteria last quarter, corporate leaders are still making the trip to make deals. Senior climate correspondent Diana Olick joins us now from Dubai. Diana? Well, Kelly, in the first four days of the COP, leadership here says governments, businesses, investors and philanthropies have pledged over $57 billion across the climate agenda. All that creates opportunities for big business, and that's why top executives are here. I spoke with Amazon's chief sustainability officer about her top ask for this COP. We want more renewable energy um, available to us because we know if we're going to electrify fleet uh, and with all that's coming and demands on the grids, we need policymakers to understand that we want more renewables, but we need to move quicker. So these are great conversations to have because I think there's a lot of um, pressure on us to move faster. 
More than 110 nations have agreed here to triple renewable energy capacity, but Hearst is looking for government dollars to level the playing field and bring down the cost for new technologies like they did for wind and solar. We need fuels to come up to speed. We need hydrogen economy to come there. We need battery storage to get there. So I think deploying capital in those very strategic ways to make some of that moonshot activity also happen or to make things come to cost parity, that, that is really, really important right now with some of those technologies. As for some of the startups Amazon is investing in through its climate pledge fund, Hearst says she's most excited about electric aviation as well as agricultural commodities like taking ag waste and turning it into biodegradable plastics. Kelly? I'm just curious, anything else you can add, Diana, uh, getting to be there in the middle of, of all the action? And, uh, you know, in, and we've talked about, listen, Dubai, they're obviously a big oil producer, but they're trying to do a big uh, economic transformation as well, a la Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and we saw a major announcement on methane emissions, which a lot of people here said was surprising that they want to really cut emissions to near zero by 2030. So that was something over the weekend. But when I talk to CEOs here, they keep telling me that there seems to be a much more of a sense of urgency at this COP, even more than in Glasgow two years ago when the U.S. reentered the Paris Agreement. And that's because of the really the horrible year we've just had, the fires, the flooding, the smoke. You know, I don't have to tell you how bad it's been, but over here, they're really seeing that urgency in their negotiations, in their talks, and in the money. Interesting. Diana, thank you very much. For now, we appreciate it, our Diana Olick. Speaking of big energy users, when it comes to retail, my next guest says it's an Amazon and Walmart world, and we're just living in it. We'll look at how aggressively these two have expanded market share, what it means for the stocks from here, and for the rest of the retail space. Dow's at almost session highs. Stay with us. And now, Trend Tracker. Welcome back. E-commerce is bigger than ever, but the gains are still mostly going to two very familiar players. A Census Bureau report says Q3 online sales grew 7% this year to account for more than 15% of total sales on a seasonally adjusted basis. The biggest beneficiaries, Walmart and Amazon. My next guest writes that Amazon still takes 50 cents for every dollar of e-commerce growth that we see, and Walmart is posting the strongest momentum in online share. And that's all part of a widening gap between the leaders in laggards and retail. Joining me now is Simeon Gutman, an analyst at Morgan Stanley. Simeon, it's great to see you. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. You know, and I, I think in some ways the question is who gets to join the behemoths? And for a while, Target was in that sentence, but I noticed they're not in your report, at least in the headline. No. Uh, look, last quarter, Target's same-source sales shrank 5%. So they're trading sales for margin right now. That's a little more tricky game, given how much share Amazon and Walmart are taking. And as we know, Amazon and Walmart both have membership programs. So 
How much longer can that persist? We're not sure. I think at some point other companies are going to want to join in. So basically you're saying Target is protecting its margins and giving up market share of this fast-growing space. Do you think that's what investors want? Well, for now, it's okay. Uh, We're buying time until the consumer spending environment gets better. At some point, covered retail stocks long enough, you need top-line growth. I think in 24, you're going to see them have to turn the corner. And so that means you'll see probably some restocking of inventory and maybe getting a little more aggressive. It could be timed well. It could be timed with the consumer maybe getting a little bit better by the second part of the year. But the antidote, or I think the formula, needs to be top-line growth. Who else has a shot at joining Amazon and uh, and Walmart? Because to my mind, Costco, for instance, pops up as a contender. Yeah, look, they're part of, I guess, the party overall. I mean, they're doing phenomenal. Their traffic, their sales, they haven't slowed in the face of this ascent by these two behemoths. They're part of the game. I think something to watch will be new CEO Ron Vacris and how aggressive he gets with e-commerce. Costco's holding their own. They're just not growing fast enough within this. But I do think we're going to see their posture change online, which, by the way, all the more reason for everyone to get a little more competitive online. And they also have the membership model that you mentioned both Amazon and Walmart do. Do you think that's an essential part of a successful formula for winning in e-commerce at this point? Quintessential. And I couldn't emphasize that enough. I think that is uh, the backbone here. And I think for Walmart in particular, that's bringing a different customer that's shopping the store. And that's what they need because their core customer, you know, they're more or less maxed out with that core customer who's shopping the store. They're moving upscale. For Costco, it's widening. You know, they have limited SKUs. So going online, pushing a marketplace, they do the next marketplace. That's how you broaden up the, the TAM or the demographic. Wait a minute. Tell me about that because I am, you know, one of these people who finds, uh, you know, I need, a, I need a little more selection. Well, uh, among these Costco addicts, I guess maybe there's two of us, but they do have a curated marketplace. It's called Next. It's selective. You can see there's a handful of products they're, they're I guess, dappling in. And they're iconic brands, products. They are great merchants, as we know. Um, curating 3,000 SKUs in store is no easy feat. And they're doing that online in a careful, targeted way. And that's the key. It's got to be careful and targeted so they can continue to offer a very good refined assortment. So let me move on to some of the other names here. You're positive, as mentioned. Uh, you're, actually, you're actually positive on Target, maybe for different reasons. BJ's Dollar Tree has been a tough year. Ulta, negative on Best Buy, Dick's, Five Below, and Wayfair. Um, w- would you say that that's part of the, the e-commerce landscape we're describing, or are those situations all a little more idiosyncratic? Well, I'll, I'll do this a shameless plug. Every company you just mentioned are going to be attending our conference in the next two days. <laughs> our, our ratings are a little bit mixed on equal weight and overweight there. Some of it's been category. I think the theme to touch on with those stocks is actually reversion. Uh, we've seen reversion happen in, let's say, consumer electronics. We've seen it happen in home furnishing, where big ticket durable spending overshot during the COVID period, and now we're reverting. And that game or that that dynamic hasn't slowed down. And that actually is the distinguishing line between a lot of those stories. We could see it level out, especially as we go into 25. But I think the leveling out process uh, probably uh, finishes out in 24. Quickly, then, do you think that mean reversion helps the dollar stores? It could. It's a good point. Um, the theme for 24, first of all, is spending probably slows. And if you take the middle and lower income cohorts who primarily frequent the dollar stores, we think that cohort actually stays relatively stable. Hmm. It's the high end that probably slows. So from a rate of change perspective, the dollar stores 
call it, have less to deal with. Sure. And don't forget, we lap the snap headwind that happens in the first part of the year. Yeah, interesting. Simeon, appreciate it. Feel free to rejoin us with the highlights. We'll plug you Thanks, in Kelly. with the conference yep. coming up. Simeon Gutman from Morgan Stanley. And that does it for The Exchange. Next on Power Lunch, NVIDIA shares have tripled since Jan 1, but insiders are beginning to sell their stakes at the fastest rate in years. We'll look at what's driving that move next. Tyler's getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.